What's up, guys? We are here at the iconic uh, Westside Barbell. Uh, just finished a little training session, so we thought we'd film uh, a little special episode of the Control Yourself podcast. So I'm here with John Quinn. Uh, a lot of you guys who know the podcast know John as one of the head instructors of the Functional Range Systems, um, as well as someone who uh, who works here at Westside Barbell. So I guess we're going to get a little bit into that, like how you got here. Uh, but I think because we're here, the, the topic that I, I want to focus obviously on strength, and I know that you've been doing a lot of work with offensive linemen, mm-hmm. um, almost extensively now. Like I think you have a roster of, of, I don't know how many offensive linemen you're working with. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later, uh, about setting the parameters for particular athletes, strength, uh, heavy athletes, uh, obviously, and, and, you know, where people might be going wrong in their programming, things like that. But for the first little bit, let's talk a little bit about Westside. So tell me the story. How did you end up at Westside? Yeah, so as you know, right, like Westside, a very small gym, private facility. And so essentially what happened, and it's closed to the public. So I was training for bodybuilding because my whole background is bodybuilding. So I'm kind of like uh, unique here in regards to, I think the only other like real bodybuilders was, you know, my training partner, Seth Shaw, yeah. ended up yeah. going pro. One Big slank. Big slank. Yeah. And then, uh, and Mike Francois, who won the Arnold Classic here, because yeah. right, it's predominantly powerlifting. And uh, I was training uh, at Power Shack in Westerville, and I was doing bench press. And I, I normally, I would, uh, the main compound movement that I used mm. in bodybuilding was a 30 degree incline. Okay, but well, I switched over to flat press, and my flat press was, was actually really good. And I would utilize 405. I never went over 405 when I trained, uh, just because I, I felt like uh, that, that I didn't want that much weight because of risk of injury. Mm-hmm. And so I was just doing a four second eccentric coming up, and this guy came up to me uh, who was jacked, like this huge chest, and I'm like. Like me. Yeah, ex- it looks exactly like you. Yeah, your chest is just slightly bigger, but listen, yeah. don't make me feel bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so essentially what happened was we got to talk, and it was George Howard. Okay. Who George, uh, people in the powerlifting world, George Howard is probably, there's probably been no one that's been more influential in the bench press, especially in the 90s. Uh, he, he, he kind of went to multiple weight classes, did it raw, did it geared, and developed a good relationship with him. He had unfortunately torn his supraspinatus twice, so started working with him more from that standpoint. And then we'd always discuss training methods. He would talk about like different methods that Wes I would use, bands, chains, and I didn't have access to any of that stuff. I was only like 22, 23. Mm-hmm. And so he, he invited me to train. Uh, so I trained for a bench press meet, did the bench press meet in the off season of bodybuilding. Well, when I did that bench press meet, I was able to, I think it was 5.40, I did raw, and then I missed an attempt, uh, but it's just because, honestly, I didn't know. A lot of, I didn't even realize that being a bodybuilder, how much technique there is mm-hmm. to bench pressing, mm-hmm. right? So I was just kind of like, I had big packs, I had big triceps, so I could move weight, but I was a very poor in regards to efficiently moving weight, right? So this is a, this is a good segue, and we've talked about this a lot before. Yeah. Um, but the idea that the, the bench press or power lifting is a sport, right? Oh, yeah. It's like bodybuilding is a sport. So people are like, I don't know, I want to get bigger, I want to get more muscular. And I'm like, well, how do I train? Like, well, there's a complete discipline dedicated 
towards the packing on of more muscle. It's called bodybuilding. Right. So people almost forget that that's where you go. But more importantly, when you're talking about the bench press, that goes to show the the fine line between your your strength training and your skill work, mm-hmm. and how and how that's under uh, maybe misunderstood in the training community. In that, like we always say, when you're a power lifter, you're getting your skill work and your strength work simultaneously because it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But you know, which we, we discussed on the volume problem, right? Volume a lot of people problem. can't disassociate the two. That's right. And so they're doing they're doing the power lifter sport, which is their skill work, in, when they're maybe an offensive lineman. Yeah, that doesn't mean. But yeah, yeah. And we were just working with uh, uh, Ronnie Coleman was just here. Which was awesome. And no, our, our, no, Mark Coleman. Mark Coleman, not Ronnie. Yeah. That's a different guy. Yeah. Sorry, Mark Coleman. Mark Coleman, yeah. Uh, MMA legend. Uh, it was amazing uh, being here with him. But he was training AJ. Is a- AJ, AJ, yeah. For, who won the uh, uh, contender, the contender series. series. Yeah, he's like, But we were just saying, like, that's a sport. You have an MMA guy, and he's training in here. And I think maybe a lot of people might think that that when you're in here, you're just doing powerlifting. But again, it's the idea that with that guy, we're not teaching him how to be an amazing presser, right? There is something to being an amazing bench press uh, individual, whatever you guys want to call it, yeah. um, which is not the same as being an MMA athlete, which is not the same as being a, an Olympic lifter, for example. So what you're saying is that you came into it from bodybuilding. So you were strong as shit, but you didn't have Whoa. the... Well, I was big. I had the biology, but not the neurology. There you go. So right. you didn't have the, the connection between the biology and neurology. Yeah, and being able to, to essentially coherently organize that to do like one rep, right? Because you're used to training through discomfort. Yeah. You know, like, like you're not used to like, okay, hey, you're going to be able to do one rep, and then that's it. Well, it's the exact opposite intention, isn't it? Because when you're bodybuilding, the idea is that the the external stimulus that you're using is being utilized in a way to build biology. Yes. But when you're a yes. power lifter, you're using the weight for the exact opposite reason, well, at least competition-wise, mm-hmm. in that you're trying to beat the weight. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to bodybuilding, you would be told not to beat the weight. And I think uh, you gave me the best cue for that uh, when you're training and you're trying to put on anatomy, which is don't beat it with speed, mm-hmm. right? So wherever it feels like it's harder, you would, you would recommend to slow down, mm-hmm. which would be the exact opposite of a power lifter who needs to get through that sticky spot in order to get the weight back up. Exactly. Okay. And even when you get delve into the science and practice of strength training, and you look at maximal effort method, dynamic effort method, mm-hmm. those are going to uh, primarily affect the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Those are nervous system-based training, right? Mm-hmm. You start to get into repeated efforts and other stuff, that's when you start to build the biology. So kind of powerlifting lives over in this force velocity area and bodybuilding is kind of in this repeated efforts to failure area. Yeah, it's so, like two extremes of the, on the ends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So yeah. anyway, you're continuing your story. So you ended up doing the, you were, you were pressing, but. Yeah, so this is the first time I ever used bands, chains, um, all that stuff. And George, he knew how to wave all that stuff. By wave, I mean modify the load plus band tension plus chains. Mm-hmm. Right, so one of the things that you know Lou really did uh, revolutionize, right, is multiple forms of resistance. So let me give you an example. Let's say you got a barbell, and the barbell has no bands or chains over it. Okay, you got one form of resistance. But let's say that I put one band over that. Now you get two forms of resistance. Mm-hmm. Let's say I put a band in a chain. Now you get three forms of resistance. So you can see that's how you're avoiding neurological stagnation is being able to sequentially move through different forms of resistance, mm-hmm. which I never did, mm-hmm. right? And George was essentially a master at doing that. He had so many years of 
him and Chuck Vogelpool and then Lou, they really had a system for how you would wave band tension. Uh, and so I was able to, I was, I was very fortunate that I was able to learn with George and be able to train alongside George. Uh, after training alongside George, and then we had some success with his shoulder, uh, and then that's when uh, he introduced me to Lou. Mm -hmm. And so then that's when, and that was quite some time ago. I think Tom said that he was here in 11. 2011. Right? And it was like right around that same time. Oh, you the same. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then let's talk about Lou because you brought him up. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Lou is a... I mean, he is the legend of legends in, in, in strength sports, right? Uh, yeah. So, like, what was it like to meet Lou? Uh, what was his, you know, if you haven't met Lou, you just, I don't think that it can ever be explained um, to the extent that it would need to for you to fully understand what that man was and who he was and, and how he functioned. But if you, can, if you could sum it up, like, what was it about Lou? Yeah, Lou, uh, Lou was all about getting stronger. Right? So it's like, you know, that's why, like, you took her out, right? Like, we talk about guys and the numbers and, like, oh, yeah, 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 we're here. Right? Yeah, yeah, we're here. here. It's like, you know, Tim, yeah, Tim, 444 Yeah, exactly. So that was the cool part about Lou. He didn't care who you were, where you came from, what, like, like he was all about essentially trying to uh, utilize training as a mechanism to get you stronger. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and obviously he excelled in the absolute sport or absolute strength realm. Right. So if you look at it, there's no better system of training. Uh, if you look at reality and the records, right, all the all time world records, both male, both female, both raw, both geared. Mm -hmm. Right. You look at the, the duration for which that was. You can clearly see that there was a system. Right. Like we talked about the internal strength model. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look in the early 90s, you had no, no, no man could bench plus 600 pounds. Well, then that barrier was broken in the same year by three guys that were all from Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. So clearly there's a system of training to acquire absolute strength that is, that is highly successful here. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, you know, the difference is, and I know this is probably what we'll get into because, you know, through all the teaching that, that we do, this is something that we see is, Essentially, everybody thinks that, you know, when you're at Westside, the goal is to acquire an all-time world record. So there's no upper constraints, mm -hmm. right? But we know, like, if you're a jiu-jitsu guy, right, there is an upper limit. Mm -hmm. There is a point of diminishing return. That's not the sport, right? There should be an upper limit. Well, there, there is both uh, physically there's an upper limit, but theoretically the trainer or the practitioner should have set that upper limit before they had started based on the sport. Correct. It's not it's not closing their MSD yep. all the way down to like five percent like an elite elite level athlete. Mm -hmm. Right? If you may only need double body weight, but if you have double body weight and then you're running velocity based stuff, if you're running the internal system in parallel with that, mm -hmm. like you like you don't really need to do the strength training at that stimulating acquiring intensity anymore. Yeah. And that's the one thing that, you know, we were discussing earlier this morning with Tom that we figured out that it's, it's not hard. Uh, this sounds, uh, it sounds kind of um, irrational or, or crazy, but it's actually not hard to get someone insanely strong, mm -hmm. right? Like, like that's all, the, that's all that's been getting done here mm -hmm. for years, right? Yeah, the, the equation's there, the, the, it's, it's, yeah. Right, so it's like, how do you get strong, but then maintain, let's say, joint health, maintain connective tissue health, right? Like, there's all these other things, right? Because as you start to increase that nervous system-based capacity, 
do you have the biological structures to support that, mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, you know, that's one of the things that, that we've learned, right? Like if you're not specifically training your joint, if you're not specifically training, let's say the rotational muscle mm -hmm. that articulates to your joint, which almost gets no training, mm -hmm. right? That those are gonna be the things that unfortunately, as you're increasing, you're, you're closing that absolute strength gap, you know, you're going to that all-time world record, that's what's going to, that's unfortunately what's going to. So there's a lot of things in there. So you said MSD, so you're talking about the muscle strength deficit. Correct. Uh, maybe for the people watching, if they're not familiar with, with what that means, because it's a very important concept uh, in order to set parameters on what you're trying to acquire in that particular individual. So maybe define that quickly. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it's something we go over in the model. So essentially you have, uh, uh, there's a difference between absolute strength and maximal strength. Mm -hmm. Absolute strength and the Soviets figured this out, uh, Zatsky-Orsky. And so essentially what happened was, um, you know, when they hooked up EMS units, they, fa they figured out that the athlete was able to, and these are high level athletes, okay? So these are Olympic level athletes when they hooked up EMS to them, more force output, mm -hmm. right? And then that's when Zatorsky, his, his exact nomenclature that he uses, the hidden potential of a muscle to have more. So now we see that when when the, uh, you hooked up to the EMS, that's absolute strength. That's everything firing. But then there's a gap between what you can voluntarily do. Mm -hmm. So I guess more simply, I should have said absolute is involuntary, mm -hmm. plus voluntary, maximal is how much you can voluntarily do. Yeah, absolute is, is theoretically, if you take all of the cellular output and take all of the forces and sum what is possible, if everything is activated perfectly at the same time simultaneously, what it pushes out, and then your max strength is what you can do consciously. Correct. And then the deficit would be the difference between those two. Right. Now for a high level athlete, where would you put the strength deficit at? Like, uh, yeah, so, so they say that the high level athlete from the science and practice of strength training is in between five to 30%. Okay. That's for someone who's been doing the, I don't want to say, but like optimally training. To try to, to try to narrow that gap. Correct, yeah, so, so even there you can see a gap and that's one of the reasons why it's, that's why I say it, it's, it's actually quite, uh, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, right, but through consistent, deliberate, hard work, utilizing the correct means and methods, you can get quite strong, quite fast, mm -hmm. right? And, and when you're talking about other sports, yeah. let's say even you're a linebacker in football, like you don't have to have a 600 pound deadlift or squat, right? There's a point of diminishing return mm -hmm. where it's like, and we know this with the internal model, where it's like, if you have a, if you have a dysfunctional hip, if you have any type of uh, joint dysfunction, joint distortion, because obviously football is, not a sport that is, you know, good for joints, mm -hmm. that that's really what's going to be the main limiting factor for that individual, not their top end strength, because once again, they're, they're more of a speed strength. They're not an absolute strength. Uh, so athlete. That's interesting because, well, it's interesting because in that, in that regard, when you talk about, it's just because of the way the conversation flew out, I never, I don't think I, I thought about it this way, but if absolute strength is a thing and then maximal strength is a thing, and then the people are trying to bridge the gap between absolute and maximal. But just by the way I defined absolute, what I said was absolute is if I could take all of your anatomy and I can simultaneously activate it so that you get the absolute most squeeze or the most juice out of the squeeze from, from that effort, which is directly dependent on the anatomy. Yeah. So, I don't know if, so here's where I'm going with this is that 
when you, you get into a situation where you have strength athletes who maybe don't want to worry about the structure of their shoulder or that injury that they used to have, uh, because you know who cares, I'll just push harder. But what you're not understanding is that you can only work with the anatomy that you have. So it doesn't matter how much you jack your nervous system up, you're only squeezing the juice out of the anatomy. So if your shoulder is dysfunctional, your absolute strength by definition is automatically less. Yeah, it's 100%. It's, a, it's now a constraint Absolutely. to your nervous system instead of being an, an enabler. Yes. Right? Which is, which is one of the reasons why in that internal model, we reverse the, 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 the focus and we take it out of the collected organization of your anatomy to produce a movement and we turn that focus back into the body and we say, how do we optimize the internal components that we then use to acquire what we would determine absolute strength, mm -hmm. right? And that's, it may be that the people who are in the gym, like, I don't need this, this joint, you know, joint training because I just want to get strong. Uh, maybe that will help just that realization that your strength is a byproduct of your anatomic potential. Yeah, so let me, I mean, I know you know this, but for the, the viewers, I'll, I'll kind of share with them. So let's say that you want to run a, you got a high-level powerlifter, you want to run a three-week wave to increase their deadlift, mm -hmm. right? So if what we did was we did an objective physical assessment on the hip joint, mm -hmm. and let's say we just test rotational capacity, internal rotation, external rotation, and all they do is external training, mm -hmm. okay? And their external training is optimal. So they increase their deadlift, mm -hmm. so it's success. But what we'll see on the back end is biological accommodation at the joint. That's right. Right, and so in, in that, and you know 100%, so, so that's why one of the things, because people will go, well, how do you get lifters to buy into this, mm -hmm. right? Which, is, which, is, which I think that maybe the practitioner isn't having a conversation with the individual, but think about it this way. I always tell the athlete, I'm like, your loading is going up but your range of motion and space that you have is going down. Mm -hmm. Like this is the, that is the recipe. That's when you know, hey, this person is, is essentially biologically accommodating and they're pushing to acquire more strength mm -hmm. in that level. And you just know that at some point, one, that hip joint will constrain them and hopefully they don't get injured, but two, something they have to compensate for that lack of space that they've lost mm -hmm. uh, to acquire that. And that's the thing with the internal model, right? That's one of the things that, uh, you know, Bondarchuk with the Soviets kind of figured out in, in regards to, you know, when you train only max effort, the, mm -hmm. the intro lecture that we do on day two, mm -hmm. where we talk about you have to concurrently train multiple methods, mm -hmm. right? So if you're only training max effort method, you're only training the one side of the force velocity curve. So at some point in time, you reach diminishing returns, and that's what they found with the shot putters and the hammer throws that they started to go down, mm -hmm. right? And so, so, so that's the reason why it's like we're trying all the, trying to get all these people that are running external models, regardless of you know you may not think West Side is good or whatever model you're running externally to run the internal model in parallel, so that you can actually starve off that biological accommodation that then leads to you know stagnation of the nervous system. So that's a lot. I don't want to. I don't want to just talk at each other because we've obviously been lecturing this around the world for many years now, but so just a few little points there. So when we talk about, um, and I know people who watch this podcast probably know that, but when we talk about internal versus external, just so everyone's fully aware, what we're doing is we're, we're drawing the line whereby 
the focus can either be on the organization of movement or the determinants of movement. Um, so when you're focused on the organization of movement, as you would with any named um, goal, so I want to bench press, I want to deadlift, I want to uh, whatever, I want to throw this punch or I want to serve a tennis ball. Uh, what you're doing is you're looking at the ability for the body to organize all of the determining factors that, that lead to strength production. Okay. So we consider that to be external training because you're trying to manipulate the movement of something external to you in a patternized way that is predetermined. When we're talking about internal training, what we're doing now is we're saying that we're not focusing on what the body produces as an organized display of strength, but we're focused on the individual components, the individual tissues or the individual ecologies in the anatomy of the individual. And we're training those ecologies to then be able to subsequently uh, improve someone's external training models or external training means or abilities. Yeah, 100%. So it's really, it's really, a, 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 it's an intent thing. So I think maybe people get confused into thinking, oh, well, you go into internal training and the training somehow gets easier or you're not working as intense. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that we're taking all of the physiological research that has been done to the external model. Um, to a certain extent, we're taking uh, all lose work in trying, to, in trying to understand the Soviets and the conjugate sequencing system and saying, if you take all of that knowledge and instead of using that knowledge to produce an external movement, you use that knowledge to develop the internal system. So we use pretty much the same um, the same structure of programming, the same um, technique, so to speak, but it's it's for a different purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a good thing to, to note about that is, like you said, like in a in an external model, when you're bench pressing, for example, you bench press, you have accessory motions or movements which are pretty much derivatives of the bench press, right? Mm-hmm. They're taking a bench press, they're breaking it down into smaller components. And then they're giving them names. And historically, as, as you've discussed a lot, that's how we got all of these exercises that you see people doing in the gym. Like people think maybe these exercises are for themselves, but really all of the named exercises that you see people using were developed for the purpose of enhancing the strength sports. So enhancing deadlifting or enhancing bench pressing or enhancing whatever. So you would break down the movement into the component parts and then train them. Uh, as opposed to training the actual parts doing the movement. And you mentioned something earlier. You said, you know, you, you're in an external system. You might not work rotation. So I'm going to unpack that a bit just so people understand. Yeah, of course. Everyone knows that that you what entropy is. We know that our body starts in an organized fashion and it consistently mm-hmm. breaks down to disorganization in time. And really the only thing to counter entropy is, is effort. Mm-hmm. So you have to put effort into the system to maintain or improve the complexity determine the system to, so that the system exactly so um, what was I saying there so with regards to the what was I just saying sorry shit that's okay we'll get back with regards to the external system we're talking about the rotational problem so if everything is undergoing entropy so that means all of your external muscles are going to go in entropy, all your internal muscles are going to go in entropy. So if you haven't trained something in a while, the assumption would be that whenever you stop training it mm-hmm. to this point, the the tissue structure and everything, mm-hmm. the strength, the ability of that tissue is going to potentially is going to continually go down. Mm-hmm. 
So therein lies the problem is that from an external model, if you're using the exercises, bench press and all of the derivatives of bench press, you're really working in linear fashions. Mm -hmm. So what is often ignored in programming is when was the last time you put effort into say your rotator cuff of your shoulder in order to either maintain the tissue that's there or to improve upon or to build upon the rotational tissue? Mm -hmm. And the answer is you don't. And for those of you watching, if you want to conceptualize this, you think to yourself, when was the last time you did any type of individual or isolated rotational training for your shoulder? And most people, their answer would be the last time I got injured. Mm -hmm. So it seems like when you get injured, people start to realize that, oh, it's not just the superficial stuff that we're worried about. It's, it's the deeper stuff. Mm -hmm. That brings us to another point. And I hate to bogart the conversation here, but if you look at the evolutionary development of articulations of joints, what you'll always notice in all the joints except the spine is that you're going to run into the space, obviously, of the joint, which is confined by the capsule, as we all know. And then the next layer of tissue in every joint in your body is rotational mm -hmm. tissue. Yeah. So why is that important? That's important because obviously if the, if the tissue is closer to the space, uh, your nervous system really develops with, with an attempt to try to maintain that space, right? A joint is the ability for one bone to move relative to another bone. Ergo, it's the space between two bones. Mm -hmm. So that space is of utmost importance. The space is what later determines how tight or how loose muscles are kept. It's all dependent on the feedback coming from the space. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, is that you're doing all of this linear stuff and you're ignoring your rotational stuff. So what you're doing is you're preventing entropy from your external tissue, but you're, you're incurring entropy in your internal tissue. And your internal tissue is what we refer to as our primary afferents, because the internal tissue is going to be what tells your central nervous system how that space is doing. Is it still good? Is it viable? Is there injury uh, here or there? So if you're losing that internal tissue in time, you're really losing the ability for your body to read and understand that articulation, mm -hmm. which means that you can't, you can't, if you ignore the internal system, you're, like you were saying, you're gonna get to a certain point, right? If you bench press for long enough, you're gonna get better, mm -hmm. right? But then eventually you're gonna hit a point where because you've accommodated to that bench press and, and you've let everything else go, that that bench press is gonna start to come, come back down mm -hmm. or you're gonna injure yourself. Well, yeah, that's one thing we talked in the internal model course too with, with shivers is essentially what's going to happen is you're going to, uh, how most systems work, right, is your bench press goes down and you go, oh, hey, accommodation occurred. But if you were running an internal system, you would see the biological accommodation occurring. Why? The decrease in the space that you're talking about just through simple range of motion, uh, FRA of just that joint level to, to, to monitor to see because like you said you take someone you you do an fra you you chest their internal external rotation you put them through a three six week wave you test it again if they haven't worked on that they might get better in the squat worse in the internal and external rotation they likely would get worse yeah they will without internal training because so, of accommodation a hundred percent so the biggest thing it's biological accommodation so a joint the joint that you described is a biological thing that is accommodating to what? It's accommodating to a dead end. Mm -hmm. We know it, 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 evolution has selected for it to not just deadlift, mm -hmm. but to technically the structure of it is to rotate. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if that rotation is not, if you're not putting effort 
yeah. deliberate effort yeah. at the right, uh, utilizing the right means and methods that you don't really know how it's evolving or changing over time. It's, it's so important. And in the course, in the, the strength course, we talk about accommodation extensively. Um, and what I often say is that really, the only reason for strength science is to learn how to avoid accommodation. I mean, that's, that's the, when people are programming, when you, you have a, a program and you say, well, I've accommodated to these, so I have to alter the program, right? Mm-hmm. I think a major thing that should be discussed is that accommodation doesn't occur externally. Yeah, that's what I was, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, go Accom- Like you said, biological accommodation, and I know what you meant, yeah. is that the accommodation isn't happening out here in my bench press. Mm-hmm. The accommodation is happening internally. Mm-hmm. So there's no such thing as external accommodation. There's internal accommodation, yeah. which presents itself as external accommodation. Right. So what you're saying is, if you're constantly building the internal system, then because you're bringing a new athlete to every deadlift, mm-hmm there is no way for accommodation to occur. And in that case, it's, it's, it's even less important. The cycling of exercises is important. I'm not gonna say it's not important, mm-hmm. but it's less important if you're cycling the person. Correct, 100%. Yeah, yeah 100%, because think about it, like if, if we know through uh, FRA of intra-external rotation that a shoulder is starting to lose access to space, Yeah. Right? It doesn't really matter what exercises you're rotating through. Yeah. That is in a state of accommodation that's probably going to rapidly increase if you don't start to apply specific training inputs to it. Absolutely. Another interesting thing you said is about back to the muscle strength deficit is that I think another thing that, that uh, highlights is when you have a huge muscle strength deficit, you can do anything and it's going to, yeah. it's going to shrink that gap, right? And, and, and that's where a lot of people get go wrong is that I always say I've never met a trainer who thinks they are doing a shit job. Like I never, I've never, I've, I've been all over the world meeting people and trainers. I've never met a trainer and be like, Hey man, do you like training? Yeah. I like training. Are you any good at it? No, I, I suck. None of my people get strong. I'm the worst trainer. Nobody's ever said that. And part of the reason is, is because when you're training um, people who are untrained, it, it really doesn't matter what you choose, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, which is dangerous because if you study that methodology, if you think to yourself, okay, well, I'm going to find out how to take lay people and make them stronger, you're never really going to learn the mechanism that you're actually employing. Mm-hmm. Because unless you are working with the people whose MSD is very small and you can make it a millimeter smaller, that's where the knowledge is. Like That's where the answer is, how do you progress strength most efficiently? Yeah, 100%. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's where, and I think that's why we have so much noise in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard to see the signal. The signal is going to be, you know, what are the athletes that have a MSD of, let's say, five? What are they doing to get to four, mm-hmm. right? And that's the reason why it's interesting when you read the literature from, like, SIF, Zatsyorsky, River Skansky, what they'll say is, like, this is the superior method to do this, mm-hmm. right? Meaning, let's, uh, let's do a thought experiment where we have... Uh, a power lifter who has an MSD of five, right? And they're not doing maximum effort method. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, even though, even though they're training and they're putting effort into it, their MSD is probably gonna go to a six and a seven, it's probably gonna get worse, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's the reason why there's, you know, once you get to levels like this, the margin for error is very small, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's the reason why it truly is a system 
but then it's the same thing that, that you were discussing. Okay, so if we know that the majority, yes, there's biological components to powerlifting or absolute strength sports, right? But if you can give the nervous system access to more of a shoulder, which gives them the access to more force producing tissue, which gives them access to more connective tissue, which propagates force, mm -hmm. you are now enabling positive, in a positive way mm -hmm. the nervous system to be able to generate better feats, what we would call external strength or organizations and feats of strength. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's the reason why it's interesting being here and having been here so long, having to, the ability to do, run so many FRAs uh, on so many athletes here, not just powerlifters, you know, NFL, uh, track, you name it, right? It's interesting. You see the people that really buy into the internal, internal strength training, right? And what you see is they're really able to avoid biological accommodation and they can still keep making these incremental gains. So when you ask them, hey, how's your training going? Oh, it's going great. Because mm -hmm. like, they're making that incremental progress. Mm -hmm. the, the individuals and athletes who unfortunately, maybe they, they, they only love external training, but they don't want to do the work required to be great at external training, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they're not going to make it. They can't. The biological system wasn't, it's it, it, it just, it's not going to make it because you're dealing at the top end. I mean, let's go, we go one deeper, let's go one deeper into this and just, so maybe people hear what we're, what we said, we talk about and they go, okay, well, I'm going to do more stuff for myself. In other words, they go, okay, so what I'll do is I'll do my external training, but maybe I'll throw in more mobility work and I'll throw in more, you know, um, whatever it is that they're doing, stretching or grabbing bands and turning around or they'll increase their warm up. Uh, thinking that that is supporting the internal system. But I want to be very clear that when we say internal training, we're not talking about the extras that you do in addition to your external training. We're talking about completely changing the scope whereby you drive the same intensity that you put into your bench press, but you put it into your glenohumeral joint for the purposes of finding more space with which to then develop and use. So another thing that, you know, we've talked about FRC, functional range conditioning, we've been teaching this for years. So we use, we put it under this guise of mobility. Um, but I don't want people to get confused into thinking that what we refer to as mobility is what other people refer to as mobility. Because we're not talking about warming up the components you have so that they can function well. We're talking about changing the components. Yeah. And here's the thing about mobility work versus functional range conditioning mm -hmm. is that mobility work as it's commonly defined is not mobility work as much as it's mobilizing. So you're mobilizing yourself um, in order to prepare yourself for your external feats of strength. Whereas we're saying the development of mobility is the constant um, desire to acquire and cultivate more and better under more understood space in your body so that you can find areas in your body to then develop more tissue. In. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we don't care about the increased range of motion so much as we care about what kind of capacity did you add to that increased range of motion, mm -hmm. which is why when you come here, if you're, you know, if, if you've stopped reading literature from since, or about training since the eighties and nineties, you might have heard people say, like powerlifters say, I don't stretch my hamstrings for the, for the reason that I don't want to lose 
tension in my hamstring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the one of the first MLB teams I worked with, the, the, the coach said the exact same thing because I was talking about increased ability to segmentally rotate. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, well, if you increase that ability of motion, you're gonna decrease the amount of force that they can put through that motion. Uh, just like if you increase passive flexibility, it might not help your deadlift in that it'll change how your, your hamstrings function. But what we're saying is anything that you capture you then have to train the, the biology of that space so that you can execute strength through that range. So at no time do we mobilize ourselves to have more fake range and then put yourself onto a bar. Mm-hmm. We are using progressive adaptation. Mm-hmm. We're using sequencing just like you would conjugate method sequencing for, for powerlifting or for anything else, but we're applying that to the internal system. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 100%. I want to go back to you. You were talking a little bit about Lou and then we went off on a tangent. So I don't want to under, like, I don't want people to, to, to come away without fully understanding how he changed the game. So let's just talk something small, the band tension. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to gyms now, people using bands, putting bands up. Um, what was, why, I know why, but what, why did Lou, like, what was it about the band? Yeah, so essentially, uh, from what Lou told me, is he met a guy named Dick Hartzell. Okay, Dick Hartzell is the guy that is, he's known as like the jumpstarts guy. He's up in Youngstown, Ohio. Lou actually had me drive all the way up there to meet him. He's a great guy. Um, and essentially, what happened was Dick Hartzell and Lou were working at an Ohio State seminar. I think it was for basketball. Okay. And Dick Hartzell brought these bands. Okay, and he's using these bands to stretch and do all sorts of stuff, right? But immediately Lou thought, oh, those bands should go over barbells, right? I think he had read some sort of... That's a crazy... That, I mean, you have to imagine that this was before you've seen this, right? Yeah. Because it's easy to say, yeah, of course it's... Really <laughs> but if, if, if you just look at these bands and, you know, people, they use them for stretching. Right. And he knew... Yeah. That, that, now, why? Let's go into the technicality of it. Yeah, because at that point in time, you know, you had weight releasers where you, you know, you got a mechanism on there as you lower down the weight releases and you come up. Mm-hmm. You had chains. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Hatfield was talking about the acceleration-based training, mm-hmm. like all that stuff, right? But uh, Lou was smart enough, man, that, that I... Like, in, in, even if you just read, like, the science and practice of strength training and what happened to the shot putters is with, you know, their four, their bench press goes up. And as their bench press goes up, they're throwing further. Then it gets to a certain level, which is, like, 505 to 540 pounds, mm-hmm. and then it starts to drop down, right? It's because they weren't optimally training the velocity side of that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think Lou already messing around with chains Right, because if you use chains only in a year, he'd be like, "Well, this is in the '90s, right?" Like, um, but yeah, and so he was able to put bands over that, and then essentially already had a system of uh, sequencing the load in place or the resistance, and then that's when they they, they really kind of they I mean they, they really did figure out how to how much straight weight you need, right? How much weight on the barbells that you need, and then how much band tension over top of that. Because yeah, go ahead. Because then, you know, obviously they figured out the bands create an over-speedy center, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, as you take band tension up, right, you know, if you have a bench press here and it's locked down, right, it's going to come down because it's like a slingshot. So if I drop to stone or if I slingshot to stone, it's going to move faster. So you get that over-speedy centric, mm-hmm. which then is going to enable you to then start to have over uh, reversal strength. 
and then speed coming back up where normally the nervous system is going to, that's one of the things when you start to utilize bands, you see how, how much they drive the nervous system and stimulate the nervous system all the way through the repetition because normally as joint angles become advantageous here in a press, it's easiest for me, mm -hmm. right? The, the band tension is the highest, so it's hardest for me. So you really start to figure out how to drive through. Mm -hmm. And then when you start to use submaximal loads, but at optimal velocity, now you're really starting to build a different, uh, the, the full spectrum of, of, of strength on the velocity scale. Put a pin in that. So you were talking, what well, you were talking, you're referring to the, the force posture curve. Uh, force velocity curve. No, but the force posture curve. Oh yeah, force, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, so what he's saying is, is that in any exercise, there's a, there's a, there's some of that exercise which is going to be harder, mm -hmm. and it's going to get progressively easier depending on how gravity is working on you. Yeah, yeah, because that's what they, they discuss that too, right? And that's what lifters are telling you. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. Like when you get advice from a power lifter, they're going to kind of tell you how to beat the lift, mm -hmm. right? Instead of making it harder. That's why yeah. when I was training, you know, for bodybuilding, yeah. I'm trying to train the tissue, which is completely different. That's why my technique for so long was so horrible. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, and then. That's a, and so many things come up because but, the idea of failing comes up there too. Yeah, but go back to the force posture curve. So yeah, so I was saying that for any exercise, if you if you map out where your forces are high, when they're low, and then you map out the posture that you're taking, as your posture changes, it's going to mess up that that force posture curve. Yeah. So if you're doing a bicep curl, for example, you're going to be harder up to about here, and then it's going to get easier as you're you're coming up top. If you're benching. You know, it's going to be hard, 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 and then it's going to get easier as you're up here. But like you said, the band forces inverts it inverts that so that you're working hardest at where your posture would make it easiest. Mm -hmm. So you're getting full range of motion stimulus as opposed to um, for half or for a bit of it. Yeah, exactly. But that brings up another point. With we were talking about that a little earlier too, with regards to your absolute strength and how there's a limit to the amount of absolute strength that. that you require depending on your sport. Um, and what people might not understand is the only difference between an athlete and a non-athlete in a particular sport are their speed profiles. Mm -hmm. So it's their ability to execute speed at very specific mm -hmm. times. Mm -hmm. And that's what sport is, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not, it, it's like you have, a, you have a speed repertoire and when your speed repertoire matches the optimal speed repertoire of your sport, mm -hmm. you have yourself an incredible athlete. Mm -hmm. um, and which is the reason why, like, they're like, like you can see that's why you would train to that optimal level of maximal strength. Essentially, put a linchpin in there, yeah. and then really try to fill in the full spectrums of velocity so that the nervous system can select for whatever speed mm -hmm. and direction that it needs. Yes, yes. I think people like people put that they have like the. Absolute strength, absolute speed, um, strength, speed, speed, strength mm -hmm. on that continuum. And I think people oftentimes when they're thinking about that, um, that continuum, they, they automatically also want to assign exercises to each category. Mm -hmm. The external exercises as opposed to understanding that continuum from an internal anatomical system mm -hmm. whereby if you lay down tissue, you have to decide where on that spectrum do you want that particular tissue to function? Mm -hmm. And that's when you would decide, do I want to be closer to absolute strength or strength speed, or do I want to be closer to absolute speed and speed strength? It's not necessarily, oh, well, 
you know, speed strength might be, you know, plyometrics with, with a, a vest on. And then strength speed might be Olympic lifting. And then absolute strength might be power lifting. Mm-hmm. So even in, even in that, the understanding, uh, it, it, it dumbs it down to external exercises and, and they slot them into those as opposed to understanding what you're actually seeing is the spectrum of speeds. Mm-hmm. And then your job is to decide where does your athlete fit on that spectrum, mm-hmm. right? And then develop those. Uh, do you have anything else to say to that? I mean, no, I mean, but I, I do, I agree with what you said. I think that from the experience that I have with athletes that, that I program for, um, I feel like that is a huge advantage that is one, I don't think that a lot of people understand the whole velocity component of how to train. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I probably wouldn't understand either if I didn't start training with George Albert, who was all about essentially uh, speed, strength, and, and, and uh, creating mass over speed, heavy levels of band tension to create all that over speed, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I saw that convert over to the point where I was almost like, oh, this is a cheat code, mm-hmm. right? You, you know what I mean? The, 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 but that's just because that's how, that's how fast that my nervous system had kind of stagnated to the weights that I was training. And that's the reason why as soon as I started utilizing the methods here and the means here, I just shot right off. And, and you can see the same thing. You know, I was successful in bodybuilding, but, you know, my training partner, you know, we learned a lot more. My training partner, much more successful one you know, overall North American. And you look at the time frame for which we did that training, you're talking about like essentially two years, right? But because there was already a system in place and a lot of it was training at different velocity, like not neurologically stagnating, not biologically accommodating, mm-hmm. so that the training is always stimulating something. And then we were also fortunate too, uh, not to kind of go off on the tangent, but that's when we really started to apply, you know, max effort level pails, max effort level rails, yeah. max effort cars, yeah. starts to sink that into the training. Yeah. Now you start to see all the, because that's, that's increasing the biological organism that's gonna do the external training. Right, so like now we have all the sets set up for how do you, how do you prime this to get even more out of yeah. out of this exercise and stuff like that. But a lot of uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that a lot of people kind of get in this groove mm-hmm. of how they train, and what maybe a lot of people don't realize until after they take the course is that groove that they're training in is the same groove that a powerlifter or weightlifter would train in there neither. They're, they're, they're not those things. Right, because that's how, that's just the, we go through the evolution of strength and strength training, and we kind of see that, like, the model that we've inherited, we by strength coaches or practitioners, is all from weightlifting and powerlifting, right? Yeah. But obviously, we're utilizing training for strength for other sports. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why you have to understand how to remove a lot of the volume from those models because their skill work is so ingrained in with their actual strength training work that a lot of people can't, they, they, they can't delineate it. And so they waste a lot of time, uh, essentially doing a lot of training, unfortunately, that isn't, isn't gonna. Well, it's gonna, it's gonna be detrimental to them yeah. at one point, because again, because of accommodation. But I, I think maybe that the definition of strength is nothing to, to gloss over. Because I believe Louis Simmons was the one who coined that term that strength is speed and speed is strength, right? Yeah. But if you say that sentence but you don't really know what he meant, it could be detrimental, right? Because 
strength is not strength. Like you can develop a shit ton of strength, strength, uh, which when applied to a specific sport is not going to be beneficial for that sport. Yeah. And if, if you understand it from a mechanistic standpoint, there's, there's two different things occurring when we talk about strength. There's the thing that's outputting the energy, right? Mm-hmm. The muscle. And then there's the thing that's accepting the energy and then, and then by Newton's law, giving it back, which is the connective tissue. Mm-hmm. So it's muscular tissue, which drives force into the connective tissue. And then the combination of those two things would develop what we refer to as a display of strength, right? Mm-hmm. But the muscular components and the connective tissue component, they're not even on the same spectrum. Where a muscle is on a speed spectrum, connective t- tissue is on a load-bearing capacity spectrum. Mm-hmm. So with regards to muscles, muscles are simply the movement of proteins, right? Mm-hmm. At a velocity, which mm-hmm. in turn um, transmits forces into connective tissue, mm-hmm. which in turn translates into movement. Mm-hmm. But the muscle component is only the question of how fast. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with anything. So like, I want more muscle. Do you, do you want more muscle? I don't know that you want more muscle. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not an easy question. That's why we always say you can have guys who are, you know, you, let's say take wrestlers, for example. You have one guy who's just jacked, just looks like a bodybuilder. And, and you wrestle him, you go, man, that guy felt really strong, right? He's, he looks felt really strong. But then you, you wrestle a guy who's, obviously he's a wrestler, so he's fit, but he doesn't look like a bodybuilder. He's just fit, right? And, and they go, oh my God, that guy is so strong. Well, how can that be the case, right? How can it be that the bodybuilder guy feels, just, uh, feels the same strength as the, as the small lanky guy? Mm-hmm. And it's because there's two ways to get strong, right? You can either work really hard to increase the, the uh, components of speed, or you can train really hard to increase the absorption of force, both of which will translate into better strength execution, mm-hmm. right? And the separation of those two is, I think, really what the internal model is adding to the, the conversation. Not to mention the fact about training a joint, mm-hmm. which is a trainable quality in a human body. Yeah, for sure. A joint is trainable. And it's progressively trainable, just like connective tissue is trainable, and it's progressively trainable, just like muscles trainable. Mm-hmm. But they're not all trained the same way, mm-hmm. and that is a yeah. key point: is this thought that you know, the if means I, are different, the means are different, but the methods aren't. That's what we figured out. That's right, right? Yes, that's that's why it was going. No, you go. What do you like? It, yeah, I'm yes, yeah. And so, so like that's the thing: the conjugate sequencing system is only going to use these certain methods, mm-hmm. which we discuss extensively, mm-hmm. right? And that's why once we kind of figured that out, we go, and then we started to actually figure out like, how do you expand capsular space? How do you make, how do you actually have simulating training effects in connective tissue architecture? Connective tissue load bearing capacity. We kind of felt it uh, because uh, I, I know you remember, right? But the conversation where essentially uh, Medvedev, who was Olympic weightlifting coach for the Soviets, in his manual uh, uh, for the management of the weightlifter, he writes, and this is back in like, uh, I think like the 80s, that hey, there's only four methods of strength training that will be, never be any more. And he was right. Right. right? Because when we, when we were able to actually start to create each input cycle for everything, they all fell into one of those, uh, one of those uh, methods. Yep. Right, so which makes that easy. That's the reason why a lot of coaches 
that are certified in Westside can really take the internal strength model and they already know really how to actually program it. So the four methods are, just for the audience? Uh, you got your maximal effort method, which is going to increase, close that gap that we are talking about. Yeah. Yep. And then you got dynamic, which is going to build the different types of velocities. Mm -hmm. Then you have repeated efforts to failure. Mm -hmm. Repeated efforts to failure is going to uh, elicit overcompensation response whereby it's going to stimulate the, the, the muscle to scale up or hypertrophy in size. Mm -hmm. And then you have the suboptimal one or repeated methods uh, not to failure, which if done correctly will elicit conditioning-like effects. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times you kind of see that one being, you know, a lot of people are just doing work just to do the work. Yeah, it's, instead it's, of that's, like the that's like the rehab. When you see someone doing rehab and they're just like they're they're on their phone as they're doing it, <laughs> yeah. just kind of like yeah. winging the thing out, like, like I'm doing repeated efforts, not to Yeah, but that's it. That's a yeah. But so so yeah. So that's that's one of the reasons why I think the integration. That's why people that are kind of already running a conjugate sequencing system, where they understand uh, how that programming goes, that once they see the internal model. Essentially, we already, that's why I remember, oh, it's like we already did all the work for you. Yeah. So it's like, where do you want to go? Oh, you want joint space? Boom. All the means and methods are locked in for you. So now you have a plug and play input cycle. Mm -hmm. And then you can start to figure out how to then sequence an internal strength input cycle with an external strength input cycle, mm -hmm. which is obviously going to have much better effects than if you're just doing external. Yeah. Right? Which is the whole goal. Of, of why of why this was created, right? Mm -hmm. So that you could fit. Because remember, you know, when we were in Florida, right? Uh, one of the conversations that we had was, okay, so we get done doing an FRA on the hip, and the head strength coach for this pro athlete's there. What do I do for this hip? Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> they, they, because they're they're expecting it happens to me all the time. Whenever an athlete comes in, they bring their trainer. And then, yeah, I'll go through the FRA and everything. And then at the end, they go, what's up? And I'll be like, well. And they, they agree with everything. Yeah. Everything's like, oh, because that objective data finally, yeah. it's a signal. Because you're showing it to them. Yeah. You're doing cars, you say, well, you yeah. see how he can't move here, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So you, you see your FRA, you can go this actively, this passively. So you go, I need this for your elbow specifically. Yeah. And I need this for your knee. And I need this for this ankle and that for that shoulder. And then the problem is, is that the person in their brain, it's not, not because, because that's how it's been done for all these years. Yeah. That person goes through a list of named exercises, mm -hmm. right? And goes, okay, well, which named exercise do I use for that elbow problem? It's like, there's no such thing as an exercise for that elbow problem. You have to create the exercise. What do you mean? Well, you have to decide what tissue exactly is the problem or is that I'm trying to build. Then you have to say, how do I match the force profiles I'm going to use to that specific tissue? That's why I was going to say, I, I, I'm now explaining it as force profiles. So all of the tissues in your body uh, are developed. I don't know if people know this unless you've studied um, embryology and, and the evolution of anatomy, but the tissues that are there are not proteined for to be there. Like It's not like the only thing that's really pre-proteined for is where the space is gonna go in the globule of cells as it's developing. So that's protein for. So you know that that particular area, we're gonna to need to create a cavitation of space mm -hmm. and that'll be your shoulder. And that area, that'll be your other shoulder and that'll be your hip and that'll be your knee. And then from there, uh, force takes over. 
So then how those tissues are utilized then determines what the tissue becomes. Mm -hmm. So a really good example of that is when a baby is born, their, their bones are not bones. Their bones are cartilage. So why are their bones cartilage? Well, because you don't require bones in an aqueous environment in your mother's stomach because gravity doesn't affect you in the exact same ways. So you don't need the density that is bone. But when you're born, it's not like there's a, a, a you know, there's a gene ready to turn on that says, okay, we've got to change all that cartilage to bone. It has nothing to do with that. It's a physical response to the change in loading that occurs as soon as gravity starts to affect you. Same reason why when an astronaut leaves the Earth's gravitational pull, you'll see increasing calcium in their blood because you don't need the bone anymore. It starts right. to leach the calcium. So what that means is, is that every tissue develops when placed under a specific loading profile. Mm -hmm. So if you load tissue in this way, mm -hmm. you'll create bone. If you load it in this way, you'll create ligament. If you load it in this way, you'll create muscle protein. So that's why we say with strength training, it's a matter of understanding how to match the force profile to the tissue that you're trying to train. Mm -hmm. So there's the example of a muscle, a muscle's job, a muscle, a muscle is the relative movement of proteins. Like that's what a muscle is and what it does. So when you're, for example, isometrically contracting and you're not moving and you're not, proteins are not going anywhere relative to each other, aside from the initial, mm -hmm. uh, the initial effort, it's not really a force profile that is matching muscular development, mm -hmm. right? If anything, you're stiffening those muscles and then you're bleeding the force into the white connective tissue. Right. So that, that matches connective tissue. That's why in the course, when we say we're doing an input three for connective tissue load bearing capacity, you're either training to length or you're training at length mm -hmm. because for connective tissue, the stress of length is a prerequisite to tell the tissue to build more. Mm -hmm. So doing this, you can do this as much as you want mm -hmm. and you can move around with a weight, but that is not going to preferentially load connective tissue. So there is a way to alter your exercises so that you can match the force profiles exactly to the tissue that you're training. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that we kind of know really isn't being done. Because when we when yeah. we just look at like all the injuries that we see, yeah. all of the connective tissue injuries. Yeah, they're, right? they're mostly connective tissue. Yeah, I mean it's kind of crazy, right? And then you know we've been to all these different places, and you go, "What are you guys doing for the connective tissue, the load bearing capacity of the connective tissue?" And I'm like, "We what? Yeah, well, right?" And you're like, "That like it's untrained." So like, you have don't, untrained connective yeah, tissue. Yeah. So when you put it into a volatile environment, don't be shocked when it blows up. Well, it's weird because. Injury prevention has for a long time only been thought of from the development of nervous, nervous system reactivity mm -hmm. as if the nervous system can be trained. Meaning that, the, meaning that they don't take into consideration connective tissue. Yeah, because, well, the idea is that if your nervous system is good enough, then you can, you can, you can react your way out of any injury. Yeah, but you can't. But you can't. Um, yeah, obviously. I mean, obviously you can't yeah, right. because injuries, right? So right. like when you go over on your ankle, yeah, there's something to say that I want to train my balance. But there's also something to say that it doesn't matter how good your balance is in a live sporting environment, it, shit happens, right? Yeah. So eventually 
you go over on that ankle and then it becomes a biological mathematical equation mm -hmm. and the tissue that you're stressing mm -hmm. handle the load mm -hmm. that's being put on it. Mm -hmm. And if, again, if you've been training that tissue from a muscular perspective using motions, that's one thing, but that would require, you know, that inversion of the ankle would require that you take that tissue to length mm -hmm. and then load at length. Well, yeah, and, and another comparable that we see all the time in the NFL, right? Torn Achilles, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And, and these are in very dynamic players generally, mm -hmm. right? So not on the line, not that not that linemen are dynamic, right? But but much they're, they're uh, wide receiver, defensive backs, mm -hmm. running backs, right? It's the same thing where maybe you optimize nervous system training mm -hmm. and muscle training, yeah. But the connective tissue, and now literally. Yeah. You don't have any of that connective tissue architecture or the ability of that architecture to behave, to, to, to even handle the forces that you can generate just by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And then well, the, it's the injury occurs. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge, it's a huge thing, but that's why, because you had brought up about how it's not a nervous system. Sometimes the nervous system can actually drive it because the nervous system has been trained out, uh, out of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Right? And the nervous system is actually outpacing the connective tissue. Yes. Because right? you're not managing the ecologies, right? Yeah. Because there's, there's, you have your nervous system ecology, you have your connective tissue, white stuff ecology, you have your red stuff, muscular ecology, and then you have your joint space ecology. Right. And, and the fact is, is whatever one of those is not trained, that's likely going to be your downfall. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, joints are never trained. I mean, yeah, joints, for, I mean, connective joints, tissue. Connect, joints are never trained. <laughs> Connective tissue is almost never trained. Right. And I mean, yeah, you trained, don't get me wrong. These are all- They're getting secondarily affected. Yeah. Not it's primarily not, it's, in a specific way. It's, that it's, like it's not like you don't get stronger yeah. connective tissue by lifting weights and by doing muscular right. stuff. Um, but you're not matching the force profiles as efficiently as you were if you were to say, well, no, I'm doing dedicated work at length or to length. You know when it's done is when you injure yourself. Yeah, of course. It seems like when someone injures themselves- That's the feedback mechanism. Yeah, all of a sudden, all of these things makes sense and then when you're feeling better you just fall right back into the example is for is working too late so back when i was in in school there was the there was this whole thing on the tendon debate so it was like we were diagnosing things as tendonitis and then research comes out real showing that it, it's not an inflammatory problem it's a tendinopathy it's degenerative and then research comes out con and, and a bunch of other people um um, they, they start to, to look at eccentrics mm -hmm. and they go, oh, eccentrics are good for tendinopathies for a, a variety of different reasons. And there was one step further where nobody took, where they said, well, why is eccentric good for tendinopathies specifically? There's various reasons. One is it decreases pain. One, there's, uh, anyway, but one of the reasons is because you're working too length and too length is a connective tissue stimulant. So where the step wasn't taken was to say, okay, well, how about if I have someone who's not injured, mm -hmm. who doesn't have a tendinopathy, but I don't want them to have a tendinopathy. Why, why wouldn't that training also be included? Mm -hmm. Same thing about you, you injure your shoulder and the last time someone did a rotator cuff exercise was when they injured their shoulder. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back to, that's kind of one of the things that we talk about, right, is there's this old model mm -hmm. It's essentially been there, it merged for weightlifting and powerlifting, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of people don't understand that these things that are getting injured, mm -hmm. 
or biological stress responsive things whereby if you specifically stress them, they will change. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when you're talking to someone, they're like, oh, I didn't know I could train my joint, right? And that's because essentially... Uh, well, it's just not the focus, right? It's right. even like when you look at those old machines and there's those pictures on the machine of what is this extra, what is this machine working, mm-hmm. right? And it has like the entire pec is, is, is lit up in green mm-hmm. as if the pec is a something. Mm-hmm. Right, and it's just and it's just muscle. That's a pec deck machine. That's a hamstring curl. We, the the nomenclature that is used m- makes people focus on those words. So it's con- it's continuously muscle based. Mm-hmm. Training my muscles. It, it's just not thought of. Yeah, I think the an important thing that people can learn, mm-hmm. and hopefully not through injury, is that all of these things are trainable. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, because like what you're saying is like normally you don't figure this out until you have injury as the feedback mechanism to go, hey, you don't have rotational stuff in your shoulder. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, this other stuff blew up. Yeah. And yeah. then that's when they start to figure out the but that's the that's the that's the part where I think we're starting to see kind of like a paradigm shift, right? Where I do think that coaches and practitioners are understanding that they can't, you know, that one step further, mm-hmm. right? I think that I think that's kind of right where we're at, mm-hmm. right? Where people are starting to kind of see that, mm-hmm. and then you know, with the internal strength model, it takes care of essentially whatever biological element that you want to affect. And I think that you also the the next step that it's getting better, of course, but the next step is to realize that there's there's no different like when you're rehabilitating an injury. Right, you're trying to build back a tendon that was damaged. You're tr- you're uh, you're doing your mobility work. You're doing your there's there's only the, the, the methods that you said, right? Mm-hmm. There's only certain ways to train, and the idea here is that those are not in new realms. So mobility work doesn't live in a realm on its own outside of strength and conditioning. Like the physiology is the physiology, and we know what makes you strong from an external perspective mm-hmm. because the Soviets demonstrated that and then Lou took that that and, and ran with it as well so we know the physiological stimuli that is necessary the big gap now is understanding that that type of training the intensity you use when you're bench pressing the intensity you use when you're deadlifting that has to be redirected as well mm-hmm. it's not like your internal model stuff you do you know just for relaxation if you've never trained with me or you or I then if you mm-hmm. think that your internal training is somehow less, less intense, mm-hmm. like a pale set in here with these guys, people would be horrified to see what a pale set looks like in here, mm-hmm. like a, a progressive angular isometric load, because it, there's no difference. It's just that we've taken the physiological principles that are known and we changed the, the spotlight. We just focused them onto something different. We mm-hmm. focused it onto the internal, the development of internal tissue individually you know, arguably one thing at a time, but not one thing at a time, but we can focus on one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. So last thing I want to, I don't want to leave before we talk about what has soon quickly become your specialty in the last few years, mm-hmm. which is the training of linemen. Mm-hmm. Is it offensive mostly? Yeah. Okay. So that's a good example of a, of a sport that has boundaries with which you have to think about before you program. Mm-hmm. So what is it about an offensive lineman? that is different from any other player on the field or from any other athlete? Yeah, so Omen Krutz, uh, who, who, he's a 14-year NFL vet, 
uh, perennial pro bowler. Uh, he's got a training center, mm-hmm. and he actually took a FRC in Chicago. So oh, really? You, yeah, you Did I mean? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then he also uh, he also did his own training all through his uh, career. Mm-hmm. Uh, started training with his grandfather and all this. Oh, his stuff. own programming. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, and so we kind of uh, we started. Uh, uh, I went out there a couple times to help him out. And then we just started training more and more linemen. More and more linemen kept coming out. So then we, we had to start to set constraints. And you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, this is what I tell people. Like, like, like guys are going to get really strong, right? Like, so, you know, all we did initially at first was, okay, let's train them kind of like they're at West High, which is what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, you get a lineman that comes in and it's like, well, how much is this guy's box wire? It's like 750 pounds plus band tension. You're like, whoa. This dude does not need to be swatting that much, right? Because of the risk of injury. Mm-hmm. There is a risk of, like, you only need to be, you know, Lou would always see train optimal. Mm-hmm. Well, training optimal for alignments can be trained different than for a powerlifter where they're an absolute strength, like, they're trying to acquire, you put two, five more pounds onto a certain lift, mm-hmm. right? And so essentially how the model kind of evolved was, and then the other thing, how I really started to interact with all these. Uh, NFL alignment and NFL athletes in general is because joint issues. Mm-hmm. So some sort of underlying joint dysfunction that unfortunately has never been physically assessed or brought about, right? And so that immediately, when you start to understand the anatomy of the joint and they can start to understand like the lack of capacity, where what would compensate for this lack of capacity is kind of what's hurting, and, right? Mm-hmm. You can build this case so the guys really started to buy in and then what we did was we started to program internal, literally simultaneously with external, right? Which I was already doing in my training, you were already doing in your training. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that, and, and I have to give credit to uh, Seth, because it's funny, we were, we were training uh, four days a week externally, right? But it was interesting. We found Seth is the bodybuilder we talked about earlier. Yeah, Seth Shaw. So, so it's interesting. So he came to the conclusion. He's like, "Hey, man, I feel like I need to be doing more internal training, right?" He did. Yeah, he was yeah, the one. Yeah, that, yeah, like, yeah. like, like, I knew to like, oh, blend these together. Yeah. You're going to get these crazy effects, right? Yeah. But then it's like, you, like I was still almost too heavy in the external strength training. And so then when we dial back the external strength training, you see he gets physically bigger, he's getting physically stronger, right? Because, you know, when you're an athlete in that system, then that's the reason why it's not hard to get these guys to buy in. Because they can feel their hip joint expanding in space. Mm-hmm. They can feel the increased neurological control of their hip through all the ranges of motion. That's going to translate into what they do directly, mm-hmm. much more than a lot of the stuff that they're doing. But yeah, so to get back to it, so, you know, when I started to find out how strong some of these guys were getting because we were doing, he's in Chicago, I'm in Columbus, so we're doing this, he's starting to tell me these numbers, I'm like, dude, these numbers are crazy, mm-hmm. right? Like, even for someone that works here, like, and so then that's when we actually started to tone it down because then we, we put in numbers, right? So, like, for instance, like, it's, it's, our, it, it's, it's kind of like a phase transition, uh, that's how I explain it to the lineman where it's like, you know, uh, water is water until it reaches a very specific temperature, mm-hmm. then it becomes ice. Well, what is that specific temperature? Yeah. Okay, that's what we need to find out what their external strength training is. 
and we need to ramp them up there. And fortunately, running the West Side system, essentially with very minor modifications, we could run them right, right up to that barrier, right? Yeah. But at the same time, to avoid the biological accommodation at the joint connective tissue level, we have them training the internal model in parallel, mm -hmm. which has obviously gotten significant results. And I mean, it's altered the careers of a lot of guys who essentially, you actually have to physically develop, like these are guys that they need to get physically developed to compete in the NFL, mm -hmm. right? Like we have guys that, you know, top five picks, stuff like that, that already, they're already, already there, but but where do you really see the change? Is the guys that are their nervous system is missing some sort of biological elements mm -hmm. to get them to be able to do what they need to do, right? Yeah. And then that's when uh, Owen and I kind of really started to figure out that it's like, oh well, there's even a difference between the skill of generating the strength to block, mm -hmm. right, which is its own special strength, yeah. right, and and how you have to then set up a system of training to acquire that, mm -hmm. right? So you, like, we're, and we're talking specific because <clears throat> someone who is listening to this and does, is not familiar with it, maybe they're, you know, a recreational jujitsu player and they've been told that they have to train and get strong and with, mm -hmm. with this generic get strong mentality. But like, we were just talking about Mark Coleman was in here, we were chatting with him, but a, a MMA athlete, there's an upper limit where it becomes a, a waste of your time and that it will not translate into any more. Mm -hmm. And I think the, I don't, I think that many people are not willing to really believe that. Like, because the idea that if I get, I'm going to get stronger and everything's going to be okay. We literally have people on the internet, therapists and, and, and physiotherapists who have this, this, this method of tr where they just, just get strong. Like just get strong and you'll be fine. Yeah, you can't go wrong with strength. Holy fuck, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. You're going to waste a whole lot of time. Yeah. yeah. A whole lot of time because, and effort. Because let, let's go let's go through that scenario. The guy that had Green Bay attention, 750 pound uh, box squad. Yeah. Okay, what if he's got a dysfunctional hip joint? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now you're running a huge risk. Yeah. Right? Like you're telling me that you think that guy's hip is in a state of function from playing football in the NFL. Right, and so you continue to start, right? That's the reason why like, there's an optimal level of everything. But when you when, when the model that you understand is made for powerlifting or weightlifting, mm -hmm. it's an all-time world record that you're chasing. Yeah. It's totally different. It's completely unconstrained. Yeah. It's the Wild West. Yeah. But in, other, in every other sport, it's not like So bang, lineman, how strong do you need to be? Uh, depending on what level, we say that, uh, if you have a 650 pound box squat or a 500 pound press, uh, either one that we think that that's the bare minimum that you can have mm -hmm. to be able to learn the skill that is gonna be generating the strength to be able to block. Uh, at the high school level, it's, it's actually less, right? Like we found out that, you know, it, it doesn't seem like much, but uh, you know, if you have a 450 pound uh, box squat and if you have a uh, bench press that's about 315, mm -hmm. You're going to have the you're going to have the nervous system ability to generate like that impulse that's needed to essentially be able to block. Another interesting point is that when you say you need this, what you're saying is you don't need the bench press. Yeah, you need you the, need right. the, the yeah. neurological discharge ability. <laughs> right. To push which, that which is one of the things that we talk about in person at the at the at the, at the internal strength uh, model, but we kind of kept out to degree so that people could kind of be in the wheelhouse and really get great results there. But yeah, what you're describing is understanding 
the maximal strength level from an internal perspective. Yes. Once you understand that, you do, you understand that strength isn't this thing that you train indefinitely that doesn't have a point of diminishing return. Mm -hmm. That's completely illogical to think. Mm -hmm. Like you said, that like you can just continuously train, and there's never going to be a point of 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 accommodation or of diminishing returns. Which is great because that same those same people. If I said you know you, you've been working out for a long time, yeah, I've been working out for a long time, twenty years, twenty years. So you can bench press it for 20 years. Yeah, I've been bench pressing for 20 years. So you can bench press 17,000 pounds now. What do you mean? Well, you just said that you could just keep going. Right. Right? And they go, well, no, you know, I, I injured my, oh, you injured yourself. Yeah. Oh, like, so you. Biological accommodation. Yeah, so, so you increased your, and then you just thought, hey, if yeah. I just get stronger, and then you had an injury, and then you go, well, that was because of, I didn't have my electrolytes or whatever. Yeah. Like, like you just have this whatever, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to be bench pressing relatively the same yeah. unless there is a concerted effort to change well, that number. Well, here's the crazy part too. Like when you start to see these numbers get crazy in the sport of powerlifting, for yeah. instance, yeah. Right? like I know we've talked about this, but it's interesting uh, to, to for other people, right? When you start to see these massive bench presses, thousand pound presses, right? What you were seeing was essentially the nervous system completely unconstrained because they were using gear. Well, what does the gear behave as? Connective tissue. Biology. That's right. <laughs> Do you see? Right. You yeah, see yeah. what I'm saying? Right. So, yeah. which is crazy. That really opened my mind. Yeah, that really opened my mind because that's when I was like, you know, you got lifters that are, you know, easily squatting a thousand, pressing a thousand, right? And you're yeah. like, whoa, the nervous system is is it's. It's crazy how when you give it more stuff, yeah. how it'll just run. Yeah, yeah, you just yeah. gotta give it the right stuff. What would be the right stuff? The joint space, the architecture at the connective tissue level, yeah. the, that connective tissue being able to organize itself, right? And then all the muscle. Yeah. That's the reason why the internal model was essentially created so that the nervous system could be unconstrained up to its biological limit. Yeah. Obviously you can't wear you know, that, that supportive care in a lot of other sports. Walk around in yeah. regular life. It's <laughs> happening yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... Uh, so then, like, if we're talking then, if we go back to, to Mark, who is here, if we're talking about an MMA athlete, you would say you have these numbers. It's not as easy, I suppose, to, to look at a, at a MMA athlete because of the multiple components of that sport. It's not just moving someone. It's doing a lot of other things. But you can roughly see that you know, you need to be able to move your body weight mm -hmm. plus another person of comparable size mm -hmm. plus some more. A little bit of a buffer. For, plus a buffer. But then a lot of it becomes, getting back to that force posture curve, hey, can you then take that magnitude of force that you can generate and have it discharged on a full spectrum of speeds? Yes. Right? Which runs into another problem where if, uh, I'll always say, if you're choosing your your max effort work and you're choosing it based on the historical perspective of exercise and you're putting all of that into a bench press instead of training your squeeze in a, as a jiu-jitsu player mm -hmm. or you're told that you know olympic lifters are powerful so therefore i'm going to olympic lift mm -hmm. and that somehow is supposed to translate into power specific to the sport that you're playing mm -hmm. which is crazy yeah, because totally. i think what we've determined here and what we've been talking about is your your strength is always 100 percent determined by your anatomy 
mm-hmm. 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're training someone's power to lift something off the floor and put it up that way, what you are not training is the tissue that push things out this way mm-hmm. or the tissues that push things out this way. Mm-hmm. And if you're only developing power in that line of, of force, then what you're developing is power in that line of force. You're also getting the nervous system's ability to discharge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can have all the discharge in the world. If you don't have the biology to support the discharge, then you're going to end up hurting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And something to, to like a thought that people can kind of have, right? Like, let's say that it's a sport of powerlifting, right? And you have a mini max, an air, a specific angle where you fail. Mm-hmm. Okay, you could do the overcoming isometrics there, yeah. right, to get the nervous system. Yeah. But what you could also do is you could you could uh, create speed through that, through that, so that when you reach that sticking point, and that's what I see a lot of times, yeah. right, is a lot of times maybe someone is training, you know, they have optimal levels of maximal strength, but they're not doing anything for their speed, so they hit speed barriers mm-hmm. instead of strength barriers. But they think that they're strength barriers. They think they need more. So strength. they go they need more strength. Yeah. But realistically, they need actually much more speed. Funny when they I, when I they see go, that when, a when lot. When they have more strength, they do it in a way that actually is slowing them down. Correct. Right? Because now they're going to add more weight to the bar as opposed to taking. And and that's the reason why you can kind of see it, right? Like we have tendo units at Owen's place, right? So and the tendo unit's going to measure the speed at which a barbell is moving, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how we can kind of understand or get feedback as to uh, we'll have guys train, you know, if they're doing their dynamic effort work, which that's going to take a sub-maximal weight, move it at a very specific velocity, and then we'll train at different velocities so that we're training the full spectrum Mm -hmm. on that day instead of just the speed that a barbell would move uh, at a, on a certain lift. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think we've been uh, yapping for quite enough and I'm hungry. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's good. go get some food. So anyway, guys, uh, thank you very much. Uh, see you next episode. Thank you, my friend. Yeah. Dude. Always a pleasure.